Tonight, as we begin our study, we're looking at Isaiah 43, beginning in verse number 22. Isaiah 43:22, and I'm going to hopefully look at uh, into chapter 44 through verse 23 tonight. And uh, the overriding theme of this portion of Scripture is God's blessings on Israel. God's blessings on Israel. But before we talk about the blessings, we have to talk about the great need that Israel had. And that was because they were great sinners. Israel was in rebellion against God. And in the last part of Isaiah 43, Isaiah reminds the people of who they were and how they had fallen and how in their own sin and their own rebellion, they really had nothing to offer God. They had no standing before God, which makes his blessing on them, his grace toward them even more astounding when you look at it against the backdrop of their sin and their rebellion. And so in verses 22 through 24 of Isaiah 43, he describes Israel as the transgressor and shows how their sin has been exposed. And God shows their sin. In verse 22, Isaiah says, these are the words of the Lord now. He says, yet you have not called on me, Jacob. You have not wearied yourselves for me, Israel. This is a very interesting verse because, and Alec Motyer was pointing this out in his commentary, is that when it says, you have not called on me, the Israelites would have said, no, we have called on you. So they would have tried to argue their case and say, well, look at all this religious activity that we've done. And Alec Meyer points out that the emphasis in the verse, you can't see it in English, but the emphasis in the verse in the Hebrew is on me. So me actually fronts the verse and the emphasis is on God. And, and God's point is you've called, but you've not called on me in a very specific, direct, relational way. And he makes the case that what's going on here is not the absence of religious activity, but the absence of the, the heart behind that religious activity. So, in other words, they had a lot of ritual, but not a lot of reality. And so there was a lot of religious-type rituals and experiences going on, including sacrifices, including prayers, and including going through the priests and, and all of that. But they, their hearts were not in tune to the Lord. And in all of those activities, they weren't doing it from a heart of worship. They weren't doing it in genuine love for God. They were doing it more out of a sense of duty, more out of a sense of weariness, which is the idea at the end of the verse there, is, is the idea of in, in all of this, it became like a burden to them to worship the Lord. And it, it became a boring ritual. Now, when you think about it from that perspective, that has a lot to say to us today, doesn't it? Because, you know, we're not doing the same activities and experiences and rituals as the Old Testament Israelites. We don't have a temple. We don't have sacrifices but we still have activities and experiences that we partake in as the church of God. We come and we gather together in worship. We come and we gather together for prayer. We, we gather together to study his word. 
even privately, individually, we can read his word, we can pray. So we have religious activities, and if we're not careful, we can fall into the same trap as the Old Testament Israelites. And we can allow those things to become just boring rituals devoid of any heart, any reality, any love. And that's what Isaiah is calling them out on. Not that they weren't busy, not they weren't doing religious things, but that it was empty. There was no reality behind it. In verse 23, he says, You have not brought me sheep for burnt offerings, nor honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with grain offerings, nor wearied you with demands for incense. And again, not that they had not been bringing sacrifices at all, but more in the, in the sense of a chapter 1. If you go back and read Isaiah chapter 1, especially beginning in verse 10 and following, he really calls them out on this religious ritualism. This, this empty religious ritualism. And so it's not that there weren't any sacrifices being offered, but they weren't genuine sacrifices. That they weren't thinking about these sacrifices in terms of being atoning for their sins and, and seeking forgiveness from the Lord. Alec Motyer says this in his commentary. I, I thought it was very, very helpful. He says, one of the ways that Israel felt burdened by this is they felt like a like they were compelled to serve and he says is god brought them out of egypt to set them free see in in egypt they were slaves they were people who were forced into slavery but the lord's purpose was to bring them out into liberty but then he goes on to say isaiah complains that the people had used the means of liberty to bring themselves into a new cultic bondage or a a religious ritual type bondage, a religion of incessant observance. And by making ritual the exclusive content of religion, they had actually excluded themselves from the benefits the sacrifices were intended to bring. Ritual divorced from moral and spiritual commitment neither satisfies God nor blesses his people. Indeed, to the contrary, for they were acting as if their ritual was a technique for manipulating blessing, putting the Lord at their beck and call. Thus, they actually made a slave of God. In other words, what he's saying is, in their offering of sacrifices, they had moved away from their original intent, which was to to bring them into dependence upon the Lord for his forgiveness and grace. And instead, they were using the sacrifices in more of an idolatrous pagan way as a means of magic, as a means of trying to manipulate the Lord into doing what they wanted him to do. It's a very Canaanite, Babylonian, idolatrous way of thinking about the relationship between people and the gods. They would offer sacrifices and they would do these religious rituals so that the gods would do for them what they wanted. And that's how they were attempting to relate to God. And Isaiah says, no, you've you've totally reversed the whole purpose of what these sacrifices and and experiences are supposed to be about. And so they've transgressed against the Lord. In verse 24, he says, You have not bought any fragrant calamus for me or, or lavished on me the fat of your sacrifices, but you've burdened me with your sins and wearied me with your offenses. And again, the, the idea is that it's one thing to just go through the motions and go through the rituals, but if you're coming to the ritual and you're coming to the experience with an unrepentant heart and, and coming as a, an unrepentant sinner, 
and doing your own thing and in rebellion against God, there's no meaning in that. It's, it's empty. And so the Lord says, you, you've wearied me. Lord, basically, it's kind of like, apparently I've wearied you, and now you've turned this into a boring ritual, but really you're wearying me because you're coming to me with this empty religion and full of sin and transgression. And so the Lord was wearied by their sin and their rebellion. So they're transgressors, and Isaiah indicts them for their sin. Then in verses 25 to 28, we see God as the judge, and it really takes on like a courtroom type scene in which God is acting as the judge, and he's essentially laying out the case and then asking for a response from Israel, almost like provide your defense. Here's, here's the things that I've laid out against you. What do you have to say in response to that? And they have no response because they're guilty as charged. And so in verse 25, he says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. And then in verse 26, he says, review the past for me. Let us argue the matter together. State the case for your innocence. And so basically, Isaiah, as a spokesperson for the Lord, is coming before the Israelites and saying, God is saying to you, on what basis, based on your past actions, should the Lord forgive you? Based on your own doings, your own actions, why should the Lord blot out your transgressions? Why should the Lord stay in covenant relation with you based on what you have done? State the case for your innocence. And of course, what could the Israelites say? Right? They, they couldn't have said anything in defense of their own righteousness. And yet, here's the amazing thing, and this is a beautiful picture of the gospel, isn't it? That in spite of their lack of any word to their own defense, God says, I blot out your transgressions, not for your sake, but for mine. In other words, salvation is completely unearned, isn't it? Completely unearned. There is no merit whatsoever that Israel can bring to the, to the evidence room. There's no merit that they can bring before the judge and lay it out in front of the court and say, here's why we deserve forgiveness. Here's, here's the proof for our innocence. They had nothing. Any evidence that they would have brought would have been condemning evidence against them. And yet the Lord says, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to blot out your transgressions. I'm going to remember your sins no more for my sake coming from the Lord, his initiative, his divine grace to unworthy sinners. That's the gospel. And the amazing thing about the way that this is described is the idea of blotting out is the idea of, of wiping away, of, uh, of making it appear as if it never happened. Kind of the idea of erasing just erasing. It's gone. The sins are removed. The record of transgressions is gone. And for the Lord to say, I will remember your sins no more. Now, the Lord's all knowing, right? So how can the Lord not remember sins? Well, it's in the idea of a judicial context, isn't it? In, in the sense of a judicial context, in the sense of declaring guilt or innocence, the Lord is, is saying, 
No longer am I going to bring to remembrance your sins and lay them out before you as evidence against you. They're no longer going to come up anymore. It's almost like in a court of law when maybe the the prosecution tries to offer evidence into the testimony and the judge has seen it. The jury perhaps may have heard it, but the judge says, I am disallowing this evidence, right? Which means that the judge cannot take it into account. The jury cannot take it into account. When they go into their deliberations and they're, deciding on guilt or innocence, this fact, this piece of evidence has no bearing whatsoever on their discussions. If it ever comes up, it is illegitimate. It is completely out of bounds. That's the idea of God forgetting our sins. It is no longer a part of the evidence against us. It is, it's removed. Even if Satan were to come and accuse us, because that's what he does, isn't it? The idea of Satan, the word Satan itself means the accuser the adversary. Even if Satan were to come and accuse us before God, the Lord would say, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have any evidence to what you're saying. It is gone. It is forgotten. All because of the Lord. Review the past for me. Let us argue the matter. State the case for your innocence. They couldn't. Your first father sinned. Now, who is that? Well, we could debate that. He doesn't really specify who it is, Uh, we could go back to Adam and say, perhaps it's Adam. And that would be a legitimate response because certainly from Adam, all humanity has sinned though. He's specifically talking to Israel. So perhaps he means Abraham, perhaps he means Jacob. It's hard to know for sure. But the point that he's making is essentially from the beginning until now, you've had a record of sin. So whether it's Adam or Abraham or Jacob Whoever he is intending to mean this first father is the the point he's making is going all the way back to the past. And then a continuous line from then you've been, you've had a record of sins. So I disgraced the dignitaries of your temple. I consigned Jacob to destruction and Israel to scorn, probably just referring to the priests, maybe the, the leaders of Israel. But the point here is the Lord's chastisement and judgment of his people, isn't it? And he allowed them to be taken into captivity and judgment because of their sins. But God is going to bless them. We saw a hint of it in verse 25, right? I'm going to blot out your transgressions. Now that that idea of blessing and God's grace is going to receive full treatment now in chapter 44. But now listen, Jacob. Don't you love those words? But now. Those are great words in scripture. Ephesians 2. You who are dead in trespasses and sins, but God made you alive in Christ. These are, these are great. It's a great little word. This is who you are. This is what you've done. Here's your sin. Here's, here's the case for your condemnation. But now here's what God is going to do. Listen, Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Those are great words to hear when you have just been told that you have been sinners since your very first father. In spite of all of that, God says, you're still my servant. You're still my chosen one. I have not abandoned you. So this is what the Lord says. He who made you, he who formed you in the womb and who help you do not be afraid, Jacob, 
my servant Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. So this is a this is a message of comfort, isn't it? You've been a transgressor. God is the judge. He, based on your own record, God would have every right to condemn you. But now the picture of the Lord's grace is on full display. And he says, but now you're my servant. I've chosen you. I'm the one who made you, who formed you. And, and these, are, these are words of care, of intimate relation, aren't they? It's the image of a potter putting great care and expertise into the forming of his vessel. I've made you, I formed you in the womb. That is an incredible picture of, of love, isn't it? And of care. I formed you in the womb. In, in other words, in Israel's infancy, when they were just a family, Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, when they were just a family in, in the womb, essentially, I chose you, I formed you, I, I made you into a great nation. So don't be afraid. Jacob, my servant, and Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. This word Jeshurun is very interesting because it's only found maybe four times in Scripture here in Isaiah, and then it's found a few times in Deuteronomy. And we're not exactly sure what it means, but the closest that we can come to is that it's based on the Hebrew verb yashar, or jashar, which means to be upright. Which is kind of an irony, isn't it? Because Isaiah has just laid out the case that they haven't been upright. They've been sinners. In fact, Alec Mottier in his commentary says, maybe there is an intentional contrast here between what Israel was and what Israel will become by the grace of the Lord. Because what does Jacob mean? Jacob means deceiver or supplanter. What does Jeshurun mean? Jeshurun means an upright one. So Jacob, you were a deceiver, but now I'm turning you into my upright ones. I'm turning you into my chosen, forgiven people whom I have blotted out their transgressions. Isn't that a great picture of justification? In that in justification, as Paul says in Romans, God justifies the ungodly, right? God takes ungodly people who in actual reality, actual experience, actual record are ungodly. And through Christ, he justifies them and says, you are righteous. You are my upright ones. That's what he's saying to the people of Israel. You are deceivers, Jacob, but I'm going to make you Jeshurun. I'm going to make you my upright ones. And I'm going to blot out your transgressions. It's a beautiful picture of the Lord's grace. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. These are terms that Isaiah uses a lot to describe the blessing of the Lord. He uses physical, geographical type language to talk about the blessing of the Lord. Free flowing water, fertile land, fruitfulness. The Lord is going to bless not only you, but your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow like poplar trees by flowing streams. Some will say, I belong to the Lord. Others will call themselves by the name of Jacob. Still others will write on their hand, the Lord's, and will take the name Israel. In other words, this is, these are people who now are 
going to be identified as God's people. And probably the, the, what Isaiah is driving at is the idea of a spiritual remnant. The idea of a spiritual remnant of people that have been saved by the Lord. He is, God is wanting to take these idolaters, these sinners, these transgressors, and he is going to, by grace, for the sake of his own name, he's going to blot out their transgressions, and he's going to bring them back home, but with the idea of also cleansing them and making them, and not only in standing, but also in practice, righteous. That they will follow the Lord, that they will take on his name and be known as his. This is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I'm the first and I'm the last. Apart from me, there is no God. There is no God. And this is setting up where Isaiah is going to go next. And that is with a complete denunciation of idolatry. In that what the Lord is making of his people is a forgiven people and a people who are totally devoted to the Lord in worshiping him and him alone, because he is the only God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let them foretell what will come. We've seen this in Isaiah in recent chapters, haven't we? That, that one of the things that marks off the Lord as unique and distinct from all other gods is that he knows and can declare the future. Before it happens, he knows the end from the beginning. And so he's saying, who can do that? Who is like me? Who can declare the things that have happened? Who can foretell what is to come? That's what makes the Lord the Lord. That's what makes him God. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. And again, this is in reference to what? To the Lord's prediction of Cyrus, the Persian, who is going to issue the decree so that the people of Israel can go home. Cyrus is called God's anointed one. Not that Cyrus was a devout God follower, but that Cyrus was the one whom God had chosen to accomplish this purpose. So as a part of his providence and his rulership over the world, God is choosing Cyrus to be his instrument that will allow his people to go home from captivity back to Jerusalem. And he's told it in advance. He's named him in advance. He's declared what will happen. And that's the point he's making here. Who else can do that? Who else can control history like that? Who else can foretell the future like that? No one. Only God. He is the rock. The one on whom we stand, right? The one on whom we depend. The one in whom we have protection and security. There is no other rock. And so God is superior to idols. God's superiority to idols. So Israel, you've transgressed. God as judge, he could rightfully declare you guilty and condemn you. But God is going to be gracious to you, not for your sake, but for his own sake. And he is calling you to himself. He's going to justify you, blot out your transgressions. He is calling you to himself to worship him and him alone. And here is why you should worship him and him alone, because all these idols are absolute nothing. His superiority to idols. So verse 9, all who make idols are nothing. And the things they treasure are worthless. 
Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Here, Isaiah is specifically calling out the idolaters themselves. Those who make idols, those who worship idols, those who are engaged in idolatry in any way, just by their very practice of idolatry, are showing themselves to be completely empty and blind and helpless. Here's why. Because idols themselves are completely empty and blind and helpless. So therefore, those who depend on them are just like them. Who shapes a god and casts an idol? which can profit nothing. The idea here is you're taking something from the created world and you're making it. So, so here is a person, it, basically in this passage, what Isaiah is going to show is the complete absurdity of idolatry. He's showing the complete absurdity of idolatry by showing how essentially in idolatry we are upending the created order. We're reversing the whole created order. What, what, was, uh, what was the original creation mandate, mandate in Genesis 1, 26 and 27? God, made, God said, let us make man in our own image, in our own likeness, and let them have what? Dominion. Over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over everything that crawls on the face of the earth. In other words, the pecking order of God's creation is God, man, whom he made a little lower than the angels, Psalm 8, and then the rest of the world. So male and female, they were supposed to be God's vice regents, if you will, ruling over the world on his behalf for his glory. When, when we worship something that is created, we're upending the created order. Because we're putting our hope in something that is inferior to us. And so here he's, he's pointing out the complete absurdity of idolatry. Here's somebody who makes something... And then that person who made it bows down to it and worships it as if it is better than him. People who do that will be put to shame. Why? Because it's shameful, isn't it, to do that? It is completely empty. It's ludicrous. Such craftsmen are only human beings. How can a human being make a god? It makes no sense, right? They're only human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and shame. The blacksmith takes a tool and works it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. And I think the idea here is all of this work and all of this effort and all of this expertise put into making this object, and it's completely empty of usefulness. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in human form, human form in all its glory, that it may dwell in a shrine, in a place of holy worship, dedicated for worship. He cut down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and the rain made it grow. And that's a significant point isn't it? Because who makes it rain? God does, right? The Lord does. So where do these trees come from? God made them. In other words, everything, all this stuff that he's been saying in, in verses 12 through 14, the, the rocks, the, the precious metals, the trees, 
all of this stuff, it is all created matter. And who made all of that created matter? God did. So in other words, you're taking things that have been made by God and you're making something into an object of worship that is intended to be superior to God, but God made that. And he's the one that even makes it grow. You wouldn't even have these trees if it were not for the grace of the Lord in sending rain on them. It is used as fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread, but he also fashions a God and worships it. He also makes an idol and bows down to it. And, and here the absurdity is of, of taking something that is common and just by the person saying it so, it becomes sacred. Right? It's like here you've got some wood, came from the same tree, right? Same tree. Oh, I'm going to use some of this wood for a fire. I'm going to use some of this wood to build my house. And the rest of this wood I'm going to use to make a God. And it's all from the same tree. And, and the, the absurdity of it is, how is this any different from this or this? It's all a created thing. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, ah, I am warm. I see the fire. From the rest, he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, save me. You are my God. And yet he's the one who made it. How can that have any life, any meaning whatsoever? They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so that they cannot see. And their minds closed so they cannot understand. Who's this talking about? It's talking about the idolaters. Those who worship idols. And this is exactly what God told Isaiah at the very beginning of his call in Isaiah 6. He says, go to a people who are ever blind, who are ever deaf, whose hearts are hard and will not hear you and they will not be converted. That's the kind of people that Isaiah was ministering to. And and that's what is being described here. Those who are idolaters, who give themselves to idol worship, their eyes are blinded, their hearts are calloused, they're deaf. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? It's like we can see the absurdity of it, but that's because our eyes have been opened by grace, isn't it? But if your eyes are still clouded by depravity, you can't see that spiritual logic. You're blinded to it. Such a person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? A complete emptiness, a complete fraud. Remember these things, Jacob. For you, Israel, are my servant. I have made you. You are my servant, Israel. I will not forget you. So, out of idolaters... God is going to save people. And he's been doing that for all time, hasn't he? He's going to do it among the Israelites. I'm going to save a remnant of Israelites. Those who were idolaters, I'm going to save and justify and blot out their transgressions. And I'm going to open their eyes to see their ludicrousness of this idolatry. And they will worship me and me alone. 
And God did the exact same thing with Gentiles in the preaching of the gospel. So we read about in Thessalonians where Paul says to the Thessalonians, you, the, the word of, of faith came to you with power because you turned from idols to serve the living God. God opened their eyes. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. These are words of salvation, of care, of love, of grace. The Lord is saying, I have chosen you. I have redeemed you. I love you. You are my servant. Return to me. Sing for joy, you heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, you earth beneath. Burst into song, you mountains, you forests and all your trees. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He displays his glory in Israel. And that is the ultimate climax of everything that God is doing in salvation history. Everything that God is doing in salvation history is to bring ultimately honor and glory to his own name. And so that all of his redeemed and all of creation will arise and rejoice in praise and worship of God. That's the goal. So that the knowledge of the Lord, the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters fill the seas. The glory of the Lord. And so God is, is viewed in this passage as a God of grace, a God of mercy, who saves undeserving transgressors and calls them out of their sin, out of their pagan idolatry, and calls them to worship him and to praise him because they've been saved by God's grace. I think we as New Testament Christians living in 2019 can completely identify with this passage of scripture. Now, we don't have little idols made of stone or carved out of wood, but we are all by nature prone to idolatry. Whether that's an idol out of food or of sex or of power or of comfort, of ease, whatever it is, we are all prone to idolatry. And God, by his grace, is rescuing us from our own sin and our own enslavement to that which is empty and hopeless and meaningless. And he's calling us to himself by grace and saving a people that isn't worthy of being saved, but he's doing it for the sake of his own name, isn't he? And we respond, having been redeemed by the grace of God, we respond like verse 23. Sing for joy. Sing for joy. Shout to the Lord because he has done this thing that is marvelous, that is glorious, because he has redeemed us for the glory of his own name. And so I hope this passage is encouraging to you to see how the same God who is at work in Israel redeeming them is the God who's at work redeeming us in Christ. And now he's sending us out into the world to continue that plan of redemption and his work, that story of redemption, in which he's calling idolaters to himself and rescuing them for the sake of his own name. And so let us see our privilege in being a part of that great story.